Hey, nurse leaders, when was the last time you reached out to your organization's risk management? How does your team perceive getting a call from risk or being invited for a meeting with them? Many nurse leaders coordinate with risk management mainly because something had happened, but there are actually a lot of benefits to you and your team in partnering with your organization's risk management. Our guest today talks about the importance of proactively collaborating with your risk manager or specialist. He also shares ways how you can engage risk management to better support your team. Tune in to learn more. Welcome to the Insightful Nurse Leader. This is a podcast by nurse leaders for nurse leaders. This show is focused on assisting leaders become effective managers and change facilitators. I'm your host, Miles Perilla. Join me every week as I speak with fellow nurse leaders, share insights, lessons learned, and practical advice. So whether you're a seasoned frontline leader, a budding charge nurse, an experienced manager, or executive, you don't want to miss this. Our guest today for our fourth episode is a risk management specialist for Overlake Medical Center and Clinics in Bellevue, Washington. He has been working for Overlake for over two years and has been involved in managing risk for multiple industries around the world on the insurance brokerage side for over eight years, including not only healthcare systems, but also universities, Fortune 500 companies, high net worth individuals, and families the NBA and NFL teams, and many more. He is also an avid rugby fan and has coached and played rugby for over a decade and is currently a proud supporter of the Seattle Seawolves rugby team. Patrick Gududo, welcome to the show. Thank you, Miles. Appreciate it. Patrick, can you share more about the scope of your role and your responsibilities in the hospital? Yeah. So I'm a risk management specialist here at Overlake Hospital in Bellevue. I have been with Overlake for uh, over two years now, and a lot of history in high-end claims, risk management from the insurance broker side. So I've worked with healthcare in the past, and I've worked with law enforcement. I've worked with large medical companies and also universities, the NBA and NFL as well. Uh, with that comes one of the roles, one of the things I do here a lot is handle our claims. I handle risk events, and I also work heavily on preventing future risk events, anywhere from training on workplace violence, training on different policies and procedures that we're moving forward as well. So I do a lot of consulting on different policies, different procedures, and help out with getting staff prepared for events and hoping that we don't have any. Very nice. So wide variety of experience. Yeah. So when I think about risk management, the typical reaction I get is, am I in trouble? Yes. Or what happened? The common thinking is you're in trouble, basically. So from your perspective, when or how do you usually get involved with the clinical operations? So you're absolutely right. That is one of the perceived ideas that when risk management comes to you, you're in trouble. And one of the things I've worked specifically here at Overlake is to change that, being more front-facing, being more involved in things that know that you know you're not in trouble and also you're not in trouble when i come talk to you um something has happened and if anything your safety that you were probably unaware of was at risk and i'm here to help make sure that we continue to be safe and if you did something right that we missed i'm there to help bring that to the rest of the house Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and usually that conversation happens after an event right yeah Mm -hmm. do you see any value of engaging you and your team earlier on 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially when we see trends. So like, like you said before, and you asked before, we do get involved when events happen. And usually depending on the severity of the event, we're going to be in right away. Something that involves like say an x-ray machine or CT or patient injury, the severe injury, we're going to be involved pretty, pretty quickly. Uh, if it is a buildup of events that keep on going like slip and falls that keep on happening, say in our ICU. We see a trend of that over a few months. Now I'm mm-hmm. coming, becoming more proactive and like, what is going on? So I am brought in on those events, either by my own recognition or from staff leaders or managers and even frontline staff who have concerns. Mm-hmm. Do you see yourself getting engaged in other incidences in the hospital or projects in that regard outside of just because something happened? Yeah. So my, my role isn't just to patients, it's to visitors and staff. So I will help out with preparing our staff with different things. I have different groups that I talk to. Ashram is one of them, the Association of Healthcare Risk Managers. And we work closely with different, with our, like just today I spoke with our local uh, police officers and police departments to kind of help uh, be that liaison between the hospital staff and security and local law enforcement and how we handle situations to see, get a gauge on what's going on in the community mm-hmm. and give them a gauge of what we're seeing being brought into the hospital from the community. So we're all on the same page when we need to work on events or prepare for something. So a great example would be the the protest with the civil unrest protest that we saw more recently, more actively last year. Mm-hmm. We work hand in hand, not only with our the hospitals itself, but the clinics as well and the local law enforcement on how to make sure that we were still able to give care, that those protests were not going to impede anyone from going to the clinics to get care. And they did it. We did a great job. We had a lot of support from staff and law enforcement. The other thing is we have tremendous support here from the community as well. Wow. So yeah, for like outside things outside of a specific patient care incidents, I'm always trying to keep a gauge on what's going on locally and broader than that and bring it back to the hospital and and feed out that information to others as well. Mm -hmm. Nice. Have you seen any trends in nursing leadership with regards to risk management that you have observed? One of those is what we started off with is that nursing leadership and frontline staff, more nursing staff have always been, I think, the stigma of that they're afraid or they're in trouble when risk management comes. And I have seen a trend more specifically with nurses, nurse leadership reaching out to risk here, specifically at, at Overlay, about questions. They'll receive, one of the things we get are, if someone's involved, say, in a DUI and they get brought into the ED, there's going to be a subpoena for, or a witness statement for our nurse who handled them most likely. In the past, they, uh, that may have not always made it to risk management. Our staff is now reaching out very quickly, like, hey, what do I do with this? I received the subpoena. How do I act on it? Mm-hmm. Can you help me? Our nurse leadership in our different sections of the hospital are very engaged. I talk to most of them weekly, if not daily, and they're aware that risk management is there now to help kind of take some of that risk off their plate of making these decisions. They now have someone like Patrick and risk. We know that this policy we're making is going to help our patients and our staff, and we can move forward with it. I've had... To give one example, um, recently I had a PT uh, nurse manager reach out to me for physical therapy and they want to get into doing like dance therapy or more motion therapy. And I, I hear that. And my first thought was like, I can take dance classes here. <laughs> and so, which is not the case. Overlook is not known for ballroom dancing yet, but I, I talked with that person and I'm glad they reached out to me because they know they can. And there is some inherent risk with that. Okay. So what are, I need to, I want to know the breakdown of like, I don't want to stop you from doing that. And when you call risk, you think you're going to get a no. And my answer is not no, it's how do we do this? 
And so I talked with the, the therapist and we went over it. And my main, my main concern was like, do we have a room big enough? Do we have space big enough? What type of patients mm -hmm. are going to be doing the, this therapy? And how big are the classrooms, especially in that? Or how big are the sessions? Do we need two people there in case they fall? And like I said, take just an observance of where it's going to take place. And then we work on that and then we implement it. So it's not just saying like, no, we can't do that. It is, how do we do this? And how do we do it in a way that not only helps the patient, but keeps you safe as well? Mm -hmm. Is that always the case where other leaders, even, you know, in previous roles, when in the process of drafting a policy, you always get engaged from a risk management standpoint? No, not always. I, I don't always get involved in these. And even from other roles, I haven't always been brought in on things. I think that on different policies or procedures being presented in some of my other work that I've done, it was more insurance-based claims things. So we got brought in on, I got brought in on different, like when an event happened. So it was very reactionary. And then the proactive side was significant changes like business model changes or significant practice changes. So that whole, the whole physical therapy dancing example I would, have, I would have been brought in on that, but something as simple as we want to change our, we want to change where we're doing physical therapy. No, I'm not going to be brought in on that. I have seen, for lack of a better term, educated myself and educated our staff to feel comfortable to reach out on more of those things if they have any questions. And so, yeah. Thank you. In the beginning, have you seen some hesitancy to reach out to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and if so, how did you overcome that? How did you build trust with the team? Absolutely. When I, when I was first brought on, my director, who had a ton of clinical experience, ICU nurse, and also had risk management experience, already knew the stigma to the extent that risk management has in healthcare. And what I was doing before brought onto, being brought onto Overlake itself into a hospital medical setting only, I was in a high net worth risk management sales and claims position. So I was doing sales and also managing family's wealth and large businesses wealth and protecting that on the risk side. So a more uh, friendlier attitude, I guess, for a risk management that you typically see. One of the reasons bringing me on was to be more front facing, to be in those meetings. So in the first couple of meetings I would go into, there's definitely that, wait, why is risk here? What's, what's going on? We're just, we're just here talking about power outage that we have to plan. Why is risk here? Oh, we're, we're, we're talking about, this is just our normal falls committee. Why are they actually involved? So I, I got involved in a lot of committees. And it wasn't just like the normal like threat assessment committee or your security or management. I, I was brought in on all kinds of things. I have code blue committee. I'm, I'm not clinical, but I'm in that committee. And it's more to just get me out there. So it did take some time to actually just be out there and be involved and walk around. I may, I have appointments set on my calendar every day for the first six months that go walk around, mm -hmm. go walk around the hospital, talk to people. I met with many managers. I work closely with you all the time. You and Alice, our ED nurse manager now, worked with both of you closely on a lot of projects. I mm -hmm. uh, worked with clinical education. I worked with HR, our C-suite, and just being visible was probably the greatest thing that helped change that mindset, or I think, I believe it's helping change that mindset. And what benefit caused you and, and the organization with, you know, being more present and, and easy to reach with other, other staff, other nursing leaders? Efficiency when something does happen. I think I'm called very quickly. Mm -hmm. I'm on the safety huddle every morning. And instead of hearing it there, 
I usually get a response from the nurse leadership or a message the night of or the day before or the afternoon giving me a heads up on what's going on. So I know who they know they are. Our nursing leadership is very great on being like, OK, this is what happened. I'm looping you in because I think this may be a matter that you that you may want to track. And I will quickly reach out to nursing leadership and talk to them about, OK, this is when I go into now I'm starting my investigation phase of figuring out what's going on. And I'm asking them, okay, who is involved? Well, actually, the first thing is, is everyone all right? How is our staff? How is the patient? Get that cleared up. Mm -hmm. Okay, who is involved? What did we do well? What happened? And is there anything we need to work on? I mean, they're typical things like, what do we do well? What do we need to work on? Mm -hmm. But the other thing is that I ask is, okay, we did this well. Can I bring this to any other floors? Does this happen anywhere else? An uh, example of that is that we have found out that workplace violence and patients' violence has kind of increased, not kind of, it has increased over time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And our ED was our guinea pig, for lack of a better term, for new implementation of trainings and how we do things. We brought, the next thing was to bring that up to our long-term patients, our dementia patients, because they also have high acuity for workplace violence. And so we're able to talk between those two units and transfer things over. And I'm that liaison who can kind of connect those dots. And so when nursing leadership is receptive for that and is able to connect with me quickly, I'm able to get a grasp on the, the specific event that happened and help coordinate everyone that was involved, get the information I need, whether that is reaching out to patients' family, reaching out to our nursing staff, getting them support services if need be, or talking to the manager to make sure that they did get support services or that we are helping them out, talk to the providers that were involved if there were any, and work the problem that happened, and then pass along everything that we did well to everyone else. Mm -hmm. So I think that early involvement has helped out tremendously. I totally agree. And the other thing that you mentioned too is the opportunity to scale what has been experimented, so to speak, or tried in one department that has seemed to be effective and scale that to other departments so we can have some sense of standardization. And with your relationship with other leaders in the organization, that has helped ease the implementation phase, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned workplace violence. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you're familiar, very familiar about that. Yes. So how has that impacted the ED from the earlier days of COVID to now? Mm -hmm. um, so that is a, well, that, that's a loaded question, Miles. Um, <laughs> how does it impact ED from before COVID and to now or from the beginning of COVID to now? Twofold. One is, I'll go even right before COVID, is that workplace violence was already being tracked better or even tracked at all very shortly before COVID. There were laws within or legislation put in place within Washington and specifically about workplace violence committees and groups that were built up of staff and leadership within the healthcare settings. We had to come up with better metrics to track that. We implemented programs here that we did for normal patient safety event reporting to actual, to include verbal abuse on top of the physical abuse that our staff receives. And we had to train, this is one of those guinea pig things, we used that initial program and trained it with our nursing leadership in the ED to pass along to their staff. And they took off with it and we were able to get way more accurate numbers and we're continuing to get more accurate numbers on what's happening. That was all before COVID. And we implemented it and started moving it along. Then COVID happened and now I, workplace violence has, I would say, become even more, I don't think prominence the right word, but it is more, we're keeping an eye on it more, so we're seeing it more. Mm -hmm. But we're also recognizing when it's about to happen so we can react better. 
in the ED specifically, you're dealing with a ton of things. You're dealing with a patient population that has not been in the ED as often as they have been. You have more patients coming into the ED because they didn't go to the doctor's office or anything during COVID. And now they're whatever they had has gotten to the point where they have to go to the ED. So they don't want to be there. Staff in general, healthcare staff is it's no lot. No one's hiding it. It's burnt out. And the pool is drying up from where you can hire from. So you're short-staffed, burnt out, and you have patients that don't want to be there more so than they ever have in the past. And you have restrictions on visitors and perceived restrictions on, I say perceived restrictions on like say masking policies and being restrictive where you're in a hospital setting, you shouldn't be out of the ordinary to wear masks sometimes. So now you have workplace violence that's happening from a different angle, more than just the normal behavioral health issues. It is more everyone. And our staff, I've seen it increase. I've seen, we put in more tools in motion. We've had the simplest thing to a sign being placed that lists out in every patient room, every hallway, hey, this is a healing place. We don't accept any aggression, whether verbally, physically, racism, derogatory statements, anything like that. That our staff can, as simple as it is, it sounds ridiculous because it's not like something that you're saying, but if our, our staff can just point to it and be like, hey, stop it. This is like, this is your warning. It's in, it's not just in your patient contract or it's not just in your patient, a welcome to Overlake information. It's now it's written in your room. Like when you go into a hotel room and you see the fire escape thing on the back of your door, it's written in every room. You can see it. Our staff can clearly point to it. And it's like, that's your warning. If anything else happens, or if you're not, if you're not willing to be cared for here, or if you are going to be violent towards our staff, we're not going to tolerate. Like we want to protect our staff. The other thing is we have engaged, like I said earlier, I've liaisoned with our local PD and work with them. And we talk through different events that are going on in the hospital and what they're seeing out in the, in the community and just being that liaison. And then also connecting that one of the things we're working on after this meeting is now connecting them specifically with our nursing leadership, almost on a regular basis or not almost on a regular basis. So they can update each other on what's going on and talk about like, Hey, we saw this the last three months. So there are tools that are going in place to help with workplace violence, and I have seen an increase in it before COVID. It's more prominent now because we have better data, but also the patient acuity and the staffing just worn out is not helping matters. So hospital-wide, are you doing anything differently now that you have better data in responding to these workplace violence incidents? Yes. Firstly, it's so early on. And COVID, I hate using the excuse, but it derailed things and or not derailed things. It delayed things. We are doing different things. Those signs going up in place, better communication Mm -hmm. between floors and handoffs is being trained on. And that's, and that's handoffs from shifts. That's handoffs from units. That's even handoffs from our EMR systems or personnel to our staff. Inclusive huddles specifically we have seen with our, in our ED and our long-term stay units, conferences about patients or what's going on in that unit, not only between nursing staff at shift, but also the charge nurse, our nurse managers, security, social worker, social working is involved in that. So everyone's kind of on the same page. So those type of things have helped out. We have, I have a meeting, we have a standing meeting every week to go over our disruptive patients or disruptive situations that potentially could happen. It's not just patients. It's with visitors. It's with staff. It's whatever is kind of disrupting that could lead to a workplace violence event. We have a standing meeting that we go to and we talk, and it involves those mm-hmm. parties I already talked about. Nursing leadership, whether manager, director of any for the units involved or those that want to participate that week that have issues or concerns. 
social working, security, risk, and if we and psychiatry too, if there's someone that needs some sort of evaluation or anything like that or some background. Those are the signs that the reporting of events, those th- three things have been implemented fairly quickly and have we've seen success from because it gets everyone on the same page. It's communication. And there's, it's breaking down the, that siloing of hospitals that you see or healthcare that you see. And the other one is training. We're able to pick back up on hands-on training just recently. Mm-hmm. So we do Moab here. So Moab training, Moab de-escalation training, de-escalation training in general. We have a training officer that is going around to not only our different floors and clinics, mm-hmm. but setting up meetings with all. We have clinics not just in Bellevue. We have clinics in Issaquah and Kirkland that deal with different law mm-hmm. enforcement. They're setting up meetings between those clinic managers and staff and law enforcement. We're also training those clinics and those buildings that staff on. They have to train on like active shooters or if they have to train on like, hey, we need to barricade ourselves in a room. Or if a patient barricades in their self in the room, how do you get them out? So we are picking up on trainings, doing different things. And then the goal is to kind of do a thing with how I coach and played rugby for years. And when I coach, um, I coached high school level and I've coached from fifth, third grade up to high school. And I can work on one of the things I work on very first practices in high school, these kids have been playing for 10 years usually, is how to fall. And you learn that when you first get into rugby. But then I will randomly do that throughout the year of like quiz. I'm like, okay, we're doing a how to fall drill. And the same thing we want to do with like workplace violence drills. Like, okay, the nursing huddle, like, hey, we have a patient in that room. How do I get them out? Or how do we barricade if we have an active shooter? We don't need to do a full active shooter drill, but I can just hit you with something quick. That's like, what are you, what do you do in an active shooter situation? What do you do? This patient has been verbally abusive 10 times and you feel like they're agitated and posturing. What do you do? So those type of situations where it's not full blown on training, it is more pop quiz. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like a tabletop simulation, so to speak. Absolutely. Yeah. But quick, not, not a, not a whole, make it quick. It doesn't have to be a full, everyone's engaged thing. It's just, I want this unit right now that I'm talking to mm-hmm. ask the question and just think about it. Keep it on the top of their mind. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. You know, interesting. I was looking at different articles this morning and I saw one organization that was published that organization I, I've seen are utilizing guard dogs due to an increasing workplace violence, which I find very interesting. So switching over to a different type of threat with regards to risk management, which is, I would say, another high level of risk for healthcare and hospital and hospital staff is cyber attack. What are your thoughts on how has it impacted healthcare hospitals now and how do we respond to that? I am very concerned about cyber attacks. And the one thing I've always said ever since my, my very first claim as I, when I got into insurance was a large cyber attack on a well-known private university. And I got a call from the president of that university, who's someone I would never expect to speak to, saying, what do I do? What do we do? It is not a question of if you're going to get a breach. It is a question of when. That is the mindset that everyone should have. Hospitals tenfold. Because if, if you've been in the hospital, you will know... If you've been or worked in the hospital, I would say in the last 10 years, put this, if you've been in the hospital or worked in the hospital in the last five years, you probably have seen an electronic medical record. If you've been in the hospital six years ago, you're working on a paper record uh, most of the time. So you now all of a sudden have these institutions that are very slow moving. They're not very quick moving. Overlake is fairly agile in how it handles things. Um, but hospitals, they're not set up for it as well as your tech companies. So they're very um, toddler-esque to the, to the um, industry. 
and cyber risk is definitely a concern. You have um, you have a lot of people touching HIPAA protected patient information at all kinds of levels. I look in the charts of patients um, from a risk perspective. We have nursing that does it, and nursing will go in a room and they have stations that they may be logged in into, and they may look at the patient, and but they're not, and they're still logged in, and anyone can go up and talk to them, even though that station is right behind them. So you have open opportunities just on the hands-on physical area to have a cyber breach. But then you also have bad actors out there trying to get that information because healthcare institutions have everything you need for identity theft and more so, and they have everything you need. So there are plenty of opportunities for bad actors to attack hospitals through cyber attacks, but that also gives us the opportunity that we know it's happening. So we have a great opportunity to continue to put build up those defenses. And we get a lot of cybersecurity companies will come and work with hospitals or want to get hospitals because they have the opportunity. They know they're moving from paper to electronic records. They know they have they have all this information that they want to keep. So they want to protect us. And and sometimes you'll have the goodwill of um, certain bad acting groups that will say like, hey, we're not attacking hospitals. They need they need to do the things. That's not the case for everything. I mean, we can't trust that. So we always are protecting. We're always working. Things. We're always hospitals, I say, are now on the forefront of protecting that information. It's just taking us a while and it's going to continue to take a while to protect it. But it is something I'm always concerned about. And it is something that everyone in healthcare risk management should be should always be on the radar always be looking at what are the new ways of attacking, pass along any virus information they have. We get updates from FBI, from local law enforcement. We get updates from our broker, our insurance brokerage firms. We get information from like Ashram and uh, Wish Out here, which mm-hmm. is the Washington State Hospital Association. We get information about certain things that are going through the cybersphere and can prepare our IT and IS teams to protect us as best as possible. But it's something I'm absolutely concerned about. And like I said, it's not if, it's when. What do you think are the best strategies for frontline workers to better protect patients' health records or even themselves? Because sometimes, you know, bad actors, as you mentioned, also steal health records or personal records of staff themselves. Absolutely. One, try to keep your personal stuff separate from the hospital infrastructure. Two, change your passwords regularly and use passphrases is one thing that we use out here. We change passwords pretty regularly. Archive as much as possible, especially for hospital institutions. Um, for frontline staff, don't just click on everything. When you're working on a chart, that's that's way more easy. But when you're looking at your email or working with um, logging in to say your cloud system from outside the hospital, be aware of what you're looking into hover over hyperlinks. Hospitals are very good at red flagging emails that are not from inside the company to the detriment of some of my communication, but they are uh, very good at it. So just be aware of like, don't try not to get fatigued from that. Do check your links that are there that click on. Don't click on anything right away. Hover over it. And from on a personal standpoint, change your passwords pretty regularly. Try not to use the same one for everything. And I do it every day. Check my bank account. If there's anything suspicious, I think I check up on it. I have the the great fortune of being the holder of my family's Netflix account, Amazon accounts. So we share that information, but I am always, anytime I get a, Hey, someone's trying to access this, I always check up on it. So just always be checking, always be aware. Thank you for sharing that. Can you talk about has your role have been flexed or modified 
to better meet the changing demands of the organization. When COVID started taking place, and Overlake and Seattle itself was one of the, we had the first couple cases in the United States. We had the, I think, Overlake and our sister hospital or partner hospital, Evergreen, um, had unfortunately the first two deaths or three deaths within the country. So COVID has been going on here, or has been on our forefront and our minds for two and a half years now. When it first happened, I am not clinical. I do not have a clinical background. So my whole, my role is like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, how can, but my mindset was like, how can I help? So I was instantly dragged into and volunteered and took on fit testing our staff as one of the ways that we were very agile. Overlake has one of the largest concentration of PAPR systems, CAPR and PAPR systems within the country. So we have not had N95s as our main source for respirator protection, PPE, but we do have N95s able to use, but we had to fit test everyone. So we took on that juggernaut of a task and over 10 days, we were able to fit test over 22, 2300 staff, 10, 12 hour days of fit testing, night shift, day shift, everything. Mm -hmm. I would, uh, myself in clinical education took on that role and kind of led that and took on fit testing. And then afterwards, I do all the ad hoc fit testing that comes up on renewals. I help plan that out. The other thing is we've had the fit testing, if you don't know, is not part of my normal role as risk management. That is not something that you would see risk management doing. That's more of an employee health thing. They had other things to worry about. So my whole role, especially in the beginning, was how can I take things off your plate? How can I help? Is that passing off uh, food to different floors? So we worked with our partners at the Overlake Foundation and we were passing out mm -hmm. food to different floors and getting that prepared. Or do you need me to take in donations? Do I need to go and ask my friends for respirator masks that they have that they use for like painting? And like, yes, go and grab those, bring those in. There are plenty of different things I did during the beginning of COVID. My role, I those were going back to being seen. I, I was able to be seen by almost everyone in the hospital because it's like you're getting fit tested and there's Patrick spraying the fit test sweet solution in your, into your SpongeBob hood and asking you if you can taste this. So everyone knew who I was. And that is probably the most standout thing outside of just regular information, getting that passed along. I do all our reporting. I do most of our reporting, our local and state leaders and did the federal reporting for COVID numbers. That's one of the things I took on and got me in touch with a regular basis with different aspects of the hospital as well. So taking on some of those not necessarily clinical duties that I'm not able to take on because no one wants me specifically caring for patients, but taking some of that stuff off our leaders' plates so they can all of a sudden go from just all hands on deck, helping their staff, helping their patients as much as possible. And just, I'm in the background, make sure that they're all protected. What is your outlook for 2022 now that we, we're coming to close for 2021, we have less than two months now. What is your outlook for next year? Good. I think the, the vaccine has helped a lot. I think the other thing with specific to, I would say COVID, I, I have a more optimistic outlook than I would say some, especially those outside of healthcare, I think, in that we know how we are getting better at treating it. There was so much unknown in the beginning. And that's why communication was changed is because it, it, it changed because things were unknown. And we're now like, okay, we, we're getting a grasp on how to treat it. What stage are you in? okay, you can overcome this, get vaccinated and you come in, it's just going to be like a, a cold or getting vaccinated will help you protect yourself and also protect staff and hopefully avoid you from getting to a state where you need to come to the hospital. The one thing I'm, I think we're going to see in 2022, especially the first two quarters, mm -hmm. is probably that catch up on elective surgeries. And we're going to be busy for that period, but then you'll start seeing hospitals start turn around a little bit more, kind of 
hopefully get their grasp on how to treat and handle COVID, how to prepare for the flu as we've, we've been doing, get people more into healthier situations. Hopefully this will also help people become healthier, which will allow us, our staff to take off time and not feel guilty about taking off time. I think that is one of the things that staff runs into is there's such an emergency and they see how busy hospitals are and their, and their, and their co-workers. And I think people feel guilty about taking time off and they need to take time off for themselves. And that way they can allow other staff to take off time as well. So we can all kind of get back into that normal, not necessarily normal, but some sort of refresher. Insightful. Can you share about a setback that you had in your career and what was your learning from it? Yeah. Going back to what brought me into healthcare specifically, one setback that I'm using one of those interview tactics, I would use a failure as a success. I moved from Indiana, the Midwest, to Seattle, Washington mm-hmm. um, about five years ago. And that move was getting me into more of a salesperson role. I have been told I'd make a good salesperson. I have never fully believed that. <laughs> um, but I got into that role and that's where I was doing the high net worth, risk management, and personal line sales and insurance. And the setback was that I did not like sales. It was not good. I was not great at it. And when I talked to my clients or talked to different people, I definitely went into a mode of, okay, let's figure out how we can help fix that problem. Let's avoid that risk. I went into my risk management background and my clients background, like, let's avoid that. I don't want to sell you something else that you're not going to need. I'll only sell it to you if you absolutely need it, but I was very upfront. And so I quickly started going, realizing and <laughs> talking with my, my uh, supervisor there, my director there. And we were both like, we need to get you back into risk management because you sell, but you take forever to sell because you're just fixing all their problems first. And that's how I got connected with Overlake. So other than that, I mean, that's probably my biggest career setback is it was the the leap of going into sales, realizing I was not good at it and having the trust in my supervisor, my boss to be like, I'll help you through this, but we, I want to help you find something else to further your career. And then like outside of that with coaching, I've had plenty of setbacks. I've lost a lot of games, um, but uh, I've always learned from it. And I, I took over a team. We had a, uh, sorry to bring it down a little bit, but we had a coach of ours pass away. And I took over the team shortly after that. And getting our program back up to where it was recognized nationally was a huge burden to overtake or to take on. But after the setback of the coach passing and some of the the team, I was able to engage people. And that setback led us to being nationally recognized again. And it was very, it was the quintessential example of like the human spirit of overcoming things to become better. And we bonded with the team and program and it was great. Well, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate your authenticity. So what would be your practical advice to fellow leaders and nurse leaders? Yeah. Don't be afraid to reach out to risk management. You are not in trouble. And if a risk manager tells you you're in trouble, they're doing their job wrong. There's no pointing fingers. We are here to protect you, not only protect our staff and our leaders, but the visitors and our patients as well. We all got into healthcare to help people specifically clinical. They had a calling to help others. Mm -hmm. And your first step is to always help someone else. My first step is to make sure that you're safe as well. So reach out to risk management, get to know them. We're here to prepare you. And so reach out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. How can our listeners connect with you? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn under Patrick Goduto. That's G-O-D-U-T-O. Very Italian. Um, And that's really all I, I have right now. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for this engaging conversation. And I look forward to connecting more for future episodes. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Miles. Thank you. Thank you for listening. 
To view the complete show notes and all the links mentioned in today's episode, visit milesperillaconsulting.com forward slash podcast. And before you go, make sure you follow or subscribe to this podcast so you can receive the latest episodes as soon as they're released. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating and review in Apple Podcast. Thank you again for joining me. This is your host, Miles Perilla, and you're listening to The Insightful Nurse Leader. I'll see you next time.